Our Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you for it, and we thank you that your work in us is done through our understanding of your word, our study of your word, our listening to your word, the preaching of your word. We remember that faith comes by hearing. And so, Father, we pray that you would use this time today to grow our faith, to strengthen our faith, to strengthen the trust that we have in you in order that we would walk before you in a way that would glorify you and please you. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be looking at Genesis 32, verses 22 to 32. And you know, throughout the majority of my journey as a Christian, I remember as a very young Christian, very early on in my, in my walk, I was told that when the Bible instructs us to fear God, it doesn't really mean fear in the same way that we say that we're afraid of things or that we have fear of things. Rather, it means something more along the lines of respect or reverence or awe of God. And of course, who could deny that it is extremely wise to have reverence for God, to respect God? And who could deny that God is worthy of, of us being in awe of Him? And for many years, I I accepted that definition without asking a lot of questions, that we don't actually need to fear God in the sense that He causes us to feel terrified or afraid. And then I started asking questions, like, where does this idea actually come from? Scripture alone is the the authority in our lives. Scripture alone needs to inform our understanding of Scripture. And so, what's the scriptural basis, I started asking myself, for this lesser, this this gentler, this more comfortable definition of fear when it comes to fearing God? Truth be told, there is none. (laughs) There is no scriptural basis for softening or making more comfortable our understanding of what it means to fear God. And I, I have no idea who came up with this idea uh, for, for redefining fear as it relates to God. But I do know that translators continue to use the word fear, even though they're more than capable of finding a less threatening, more comfortable word, if doing so made for a more accurate translation of the word. And the idea of fearing God is found in Scripture from beginning to end. It is everywhere in Scripture. It's the thread that goes from Genesis 1 to Revelation. It goes all the way through. So even when we aren't instructed explicitly to fear God, we see the wisdom in fearing God. Think about it. Peter, when he realized that he was standing before Almighty God, he fell down in fear, begging Jesus to leave him. Later on in his life, he'd write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, to fear God. Fear God. Jesus instructs us, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, if you just insert 
reverence or awe. Have reverence or awe for these other people. Don't, don't, don't have reverence or awe for these other people, but it just doesn't make sense. For both Peter and Jesus, by the way, it's worth noting that the Greek word that they use is phobeo, which is, of course, the word that we get phobia from, phobeo. And it might be worth noting that if you have a phobia of spiders, Noel, you don't fear, you fear them, but you don't respect them, and you are not in necessarily, you're not necessarily in awe of them, right? So the whole idea that this word means just reverence or, or awe doesn't work with those. When Isaiah was in the presence of God, what did he do? He fell down and he said, woe is me. In other words, I am doomed. Not just out of reverence, not just out of awe, but out of fear. Solomon would write in Proverbs 1.7 that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Later in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, he writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He concludes the book of Ecclesiastes by writing, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So this is a theme that we find from beginning to end of Scripture. At the same time, and maybe this is where the, the whole redefinition of the idea of fear comes from, we're told in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, that perfect love drives out fear. So how do we reconcile these two things, that we're instructed to fear, and yet perfect love drives out fear? Well, the reality is, Your love for God, my love for God, isn't perfected yet. It has not yet been perfected. It will in glory. But on this side of death, it hasn't been. As we continue our study of Genesis today, we'll see that Jacob's love for God hadn't been perfected either. And as we begin this passage, in fact, Jacob, we have to understand, has has failed to rightly fear God. He had feared Laban, if you remember, his uncle. And and who can blame him for fearing Laban? Laban was not a nice guy. He feared Esau the way that, you know, I I might fear Mike Tyson if he and I were locked in a room together and I thought that he might be mad at me. But Jacob, while he loved God and while he trusted God, Jacob did not fear God yet. Yet. Instead, what he had done is he had used God. And he had continued to rely far too much on himself. That's what we saw last week when we saw him preparing to meet Esau. And we saw that he did pray, but his prayer was sandwiched between him acting on his own wisdom. It's kind of like he was busy scurrying around, dividing his camp. Oh yeah, I better pray. He prays. Oh yeah, okay, let's come up with another idea. Let's, Let's have this long convoy of gifts that we can present to Esau so that maybe just maybe he will be appeased by it. Two instances in which he trusted trusted in himself and his own wisdom, his own scheming, rather than trusting in the Lord. Ever since his conversion experience, when he saw the ladder descending from heaven and was promised protection and blessing by God. Jacob has been using God the same way he's always used people to get what he wanted for himself. To get what number one wants, himself. But now the time has come for Jacob to grow up 
and realize that God is not just some magic genie that you keep tucked away in a bottle until you need something and then you open it for a second to let him out. But that God is to be feared. We're not to use God. We are to submit to Him. So our passage today is found in Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. And the central point of this passage is that fearing God causes us to walk in His strength instead of our own, and it enables us to walk in obedience to Him. The more we fear God, the more we fear the sin that we see in our lives. So let's start with Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 24. The same night, that is the night that he was preparing to meet Esau. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So this is what we see after Jacob had arranged this, this long convoy, this procession of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of animals as gifts to Esau in hopes of appeasing him. To refresh your memory, it was 200 female goats followed by 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys, and a partridge in a pear tree, basically. Jacob was willing to give up absolutely everything. He was willing to surrender absolutely everything except himself. Except himself. But even with all of his elaborate scheming, even with all of his elaborate planning, what we see in these opening verses of this passage is just the briefest glimpse of the distress, the deep, deep restlessness in his heart that's going on in his heart and in his mind. Have you ever tried to go to sleep when you're absolutely petrified? Have you ever tried to, to get some rest while your imagination is going absolutely crazy? That's, that's what's happening to Jacob here. I've had my share of nights like that, and that's the, the type of night that Jacob is having too. So instead of laying there, and instead of just letting his, his imagination just run wild, he gets up, he wakes up his family, and he moves them across the ford of the Jabbok. Now we might miss how crazy this is. Because this is the middle of the night. And if you ever go out into the desert in the middle of the night, man, it is dark. It is, it is dark. I mean, crossing a ford, crossing a river, was extremely dangerous in the daytime. At night out in the desert, it, it's dark, and it's, it's colder than Mike Tyson's stare when he's mad at you. But the lack of, of visibility makes the crossing of a river at night more than just dangerous. It's really just kind of stupid. It, it's a foolish idea. It's extremely dangerous. But Jacob was so afraid of what Esau might do if Esau were to actually successfully invade his camp and not take, not take the alternative camp. Remember, he divided his camp into two. Not take the other one, but take his. He couldn't just sleep there and do nothing. 
So, so all of his family and all of the possessions that he has left after the gifts that he was going to present to Esau, all this stuff is, is across the river. He comes back, and Jacob is alone in the darkness. And as he heads back to his camp in the, the pitch blackness of night, a hand suddenly reaches out and grabs him, seemingly from, from out of nowhere. Who, who was this? Was it a thief who maybe had been following him from Laban's camp? Was it somebody from Esau's army who had gone ahead to scout out what was there and decided that he could take Jacob out himself before Esau even needed to bother? Or was it Esau himself? These are the types of thoughts that had to have been racing through Jacob's mind as this man grabs him in the pitch blackness of night. And so this man grabs Jacob and he wrestles Jacob through the night. Now I know a lot of people in the past have have said, and commentators will sometimes say, that this is a passage about prevailing in prayer through the night. That is not what this is about. There are actually four things that we need to be mindful of, that we we need to observe in the text and, and keep in mind as we read this. First of all, who is this man who grabs him and won't let him go and starts wrestling with him? It's the Lord himself. It's the Lord himself. Later on in the passage, Jacob himself will acknowledge that it was God. Hosea chapter 12, verse 4 refers to this as the angel. Not an angel, but the angel, as in the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. And no doubt, Jacob had imagined for years the, the kind of confrontation he might have with Laban when he was about to leave. That's why he snuck away. When Laban was away. He knew that he had an adversary in Esau for, for 20 years, for 20 plus years. But now, now God himself is his adversary. He probably never imagined that the God who promised to bless him and to protect him would now oppose him. He probably never imagined that this God who promised to bless and protect him would do anything to make him feel uncomfortable or threatened. He probably made the same mistake that we so often do. He probably thought that God was safe, that God was mild, that God was tame, and that when we have the understanding that God is for us, it means He's going to give us exactly what we want. No doubt he had imagined a confrontation with Laban and Esau but he'd never imagined it with God. So that's the first thing that we need to keep in mind is this is God he's wrestling with. The second thing we need to keep in mind is that this is not just a dream or a vision. Now, there's, there's definitely a, a, a strong spiritual aspect to this encounter, but this is a physical altercation. This is happening in, in the flesh. It's happening physically. Third, we should notice that they are wrestling. They're not fighting in other words, they're not throwing punches. God didn't come up to them and try to, try to knock them out or something like that. They're, 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 not, they're not swinging for the fences at each other. God wraps his arms around Jacob and he wrestles with Jacob and Jacob cannot get away. You know, when you're, when you're throwing punches in a fight, there's distance. So somebody can try to get away. One of the people can try to get away. But that's not the case with wrestling. 
The fourth thing that we need to see here, and this is maybe the most important detail out of all of these, is that Jacob was not the instigator. He wasn't seeking God. God is the instigator here. God wrestles Jacob, according to the text. It doesn't say Jacob wrestled God. God wrestled Jacob. God is the aggressor. God is the one who took the initiative. It doesn't say that Jacob wrestled with him. It's a very significant detail. Jacob hadn't come to God. God had come to take hold of Jacob. And Jacob is just trying to basically defend himself. The God-man is wrestling with him, and he's trying to wrestle back. Jacob is trying to wrestle back. So let's be very clear about this. Jacob has not come to God to wrestle something or or to, to take something away to gain something from God. God has come to gain something from Jacob. A fuller and deeper personal submission unto God. And the end of Jacob relying on his scheming and plotting. The end of Jacob relying on himself and trusting in himself first and foremost. And it's really kind of amazing to think that they they wrestled through the night. I don't know if you've ever wrestled. Some of you probably have. Wrestling is a sport that is unlike any other. It is absolutely exhausting. When I was in my early 20s, I studied Brazilian jiu-jitsu for about a year, uh, which is a, a grappling sport. And, and keep in mind that I had grown up playing very competitive soccer, and I, I had studied both judo and karate you know, for several years as a teenager. But the grappling that's involved in Brazilian jiu-jitsu is far, far more exhausting than anything I had ever experienced. You use every muscle from your, your earlobes to your, you know, the tips of your toes when you're wrestling. I remember, you know, just after, after a 10-minute, uh, you know, sparring match, my gi would be absolutely soaking wet. I, I never sweat that much when I played 90 minutes of soccer. So it was like, yeah, 10 minutes of, of wrestling is more physically draining, more physically exhausting than 90 minutes of soccer by a long shot. So what must it have been like to wrestle all night long? Now, obviously, God's kind of taken it easy on him. God could have defeated Jacob and wrestled him into a a joint lock submission or something within seconds. We know that. So the question becomes, why did they wrestle all night long? If God was coming to, to, to just wrestle him, Why didn't he defeat him and then get out of there? Why all night long? And I think the answer is this. It's because it's easy to submit simply because your pain threshold, whether that be physical pain or emotional pain, it's easy to submit when your pain threshold gets crossed. But getting Jacob to submit himself. Getting Jacob to submit himself his will, was a much more difficult task. Like us, Jacob was stubborn. And like us, his will, his his reliance on himself was extremely strong. God isn't just trying to defeat Jacob. Rather, he's bringing Jacob to the end 
of himself. He's bringing Jacob to a point where he will submit his will unto God. And that took all night. That took all night, and it would for us too. Let's look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. At this point, I'm not sure that Jacob really knew exactly who this man was, who, who he was up against. Uh, so when we read that, that, that God, when we read that the God man here saw that he wasn't prevailing, we need to understand that it means that he knew that Jacob's will, his stubborn self-reliance was still strong. It, it was still intact. He wasn't yielding yet. But then he cripples Jacob. And he crippled him for life by simply touching his hip socket. Just a touch. Not a joint lock. Not some type of Boston Crab or figure four, you know, anything like that. You know, touch. And his hip is destroyed. He's crippled for life. And I'm sure at that point, Jacob suddenly understood exactly who he was up against. Up until that point, he probably thought that he'd been holding his own, doing pretty well in this wrestling match, keeping it even. But then the Lord gives him just a glimpse of the power of God. He shows Jacob that Jacob doesn't have a chance. One quick touch on the hip. Jacob's hip is injured. The flesh is so powerful, and it dies hard. But God can overcome it. So, so how did Jacob endure in this wrestling match that went on for hours and hours and hours on end? How did, how did he last that long in, in a wrestling match with God? I mean, we can marvel at that, but what we need to understand is that his stubborn self-determination, his stubborn self-reliance, was really no different than yours or mine when it comes to yielding ourselves fully and completely unto God. Not just having some checklist where we can check off things, you know, one at a time, and okay, I, I, I've, done what, I've done my duty, I've done what I'm supposed to do, but really giving our hearts. So that is why he lasted so long. Same reason we would. We persist in sin that we know that we should be turning from, that we should be repenting of. But we're determined to live by our rules. We're determined to have our way and to live however we want, whatever makes us happy, as if we will eventually win out over God. But the reality about us is that there will be sins that we struggle greatly to give up on. There will be sins that you will go back to over and over and over again throughout the course of your life, even after you're saved. Maybe it's your temper. Maybe it's moralism. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's, it's lusting. Maybe it's using foul language. Sin, whatever the sin might be, sin has this way of clinging to us, clinging to our hearts, clinging to our minds, clinging to the, the, to the flesh, adamantly refusing 
to give up. Adamantly, our flesh refuses to submit fully to God. I think most of us have this image of God as being this kind of old, gentle, bearded, jolly grandfather who's, who's you know, pretty nice guy, shows up once a year, comes down the chimney. Oh, wait a minute. I'm describing Santa Claus. But really, don't most people treat God exactly the same as they treat Santa Claus? You know, he's, he's nice to have around. He's a peaceful guy. He, he's jolly. He, he laughs a lot. He's not fearsome. Uh, he, he's peaceful. He's tame. And when we want stuff, it's, it's good to have him around. But know this. That is not the God of Scripture. The God who reveals Himself in Scripture is not tame. The God who reveals Himself in Scripture is terribly, terribly fearsome. He is fierce. He is ferocious. And until we have this biblical understanding of who God is, we will continue to live our lives as if obedience unto Him is optional something we can choose to do or not do in the moment depending on whatever seems right in our own eyes in the moment see the flesh wants to be in control every one of us has that every one of us struggles with that the fact that the flesh wants to be in control the flesh is stubborn it's self-reliant the flesh causes us to even prefer to do things our way instead of god's way it's so strong and, and so we live our lives the way we want to live them, and we do the things that we want to do, and we seek happiness at our own definition, as if God is no different than Santa Claus. Until the Lion of Judah roars and takes a swipe to humble us. And we learn that there is an enormous difference between God and Santa Claus. We learn that obedience isn't optional. We learn that submission unto Him is mandatory. And not only mandatory, it's, it's wise. And it's so hard for us to see that until it's the last option left on the table. Not a single one of us truly believes that we could hold our own against God when it comes down to it. But it's so much easier to live our lives as if we can. And the flesh doesn't want it any other way. But the good news is that God always gets what He wants. The good news is that God will discipline His children to break them from self-reliance, from, to break them from reliance on the flesh. He is causing everything in creation he is causing all things not just some things not just a few things he is causing all things to work together to cause us as his people to conform to the image of christ and that doesn't happen without a serious serious battle a serious struggle with the flesh God doesn't play by our rules. 
He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't play as we would call fair. He's perfectly just and we're not. We have this very skewed understanding of what perfectly just is when it's applied to us. And as Nebuchadnezzar writes in Daniel 4.35, he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? If you're wise... You don't force God to injure you in some way before you submit. You don't force God to discipline you, to humble you before you submit to Him. You understand early on that God is God and that when He demands our eager and our full submission, He doesn't really mean 25% good enough. He doesn't mean 50% is good enough. He doesn't mean 75% or 99% is good enough. And He doesn't mean do it someday. He wants it all now. Immediately. And it's not optional. And even when we strive to do it, we do it imperfectly. I understand that. But the question is whether you're striving for the holiness without which nobody will see God. When we resist His will, God works to bring us to a point of personal submission so that we may see the complete and utter depravity, the complete wickedness and the power of the flesh. What grace! What grace! What glorious and marvelous an undeserved grace that God would love us enough to discipline us, to humble us, to break us from the strength of our flesh, putting us in a posture in order that we may reap greater and greater portions of His blessings upon us. And yet the question is, what's it going to take for you? What's it going to take to bring you to that point where you submit all? How long will you persist in your resistance to, to surrendering the sins that you know you should be submitting, you should be walking away from, you should be repenting of, and choose to walk in obedience unto Him instead? If you think it's going to get easier at some point down the road, you are lying to yourself. It doesn't get easier. You can't put it off until someday. It has to start right where you are right now. What would it take for God to bring you to your senses? And is that really what you want Him to have to do? This is where we see the wisdom of living with a fear of the Lord. See, Jacob didn't need to fear Laban. He didn't need to fear Esau. God had, had taken care of those things. God is the one who had called him into Canaan, into the fullness of God's promises. And He's the one who would ensure Jacob's safe arrival in Canaan. Now, the greatest challenge that Jacob faced on the journey to Canaan, on the journey to receiving the fullness of God's promises, was God Himself. And the same is true for us. The exact same is true for us. You don't need to fear man. You don't need to fear anything if you rightly fear God. The cure for, for fear 
is not to trust more in yourself or to gain some confidence in yourself. No, the, the cure for any worldly fear that we might face on this journey to receiving the fullness of God's promises is to fear rightly. That is, to fear God. And to live your life in a posture of humble surrender unto Him. Let's continue. Verses 26 to 32. Then he said, let me go, he being the angel of the Lord, Jesus. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So the wrestling lasted until the sun was up. It lasted all night long. And even after God injured Jacob's hip, Jacob continued to to struggle. He continued to wrestle. And so finally, God-man says, let me go. You know, release me because the sun's up. He knows that Jacob has some very important business to take care of. He has to go and see Esau. And his holy purpose, the, 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 the Lord's holy purpose here in wrestling with Jacob has finally been accomplished because Jacob is a broken man. He's a delivered man. And that's a wonderful thing because he, he needed to be broken. He needed his will to be shattered and he needed that badly. Jacob's going to walk away from this encounter changed forever. And it seems odd that, that the Lord here asks Jacob to let him go, isn't it? I mean, if he, if he really wanted to, to get free, he, he could have. He, he's God. You know, one touch, you know, the hips, you know, out of, out of place. He could have done whatever he wanted to do to get out of this wrestling match. And so wouldn't it seem that there would have to be some other reason for him to request that Jacob let him go? The reason that he says this is really to test Jacob. He's testing him. And Jacob passes the test. He refuses to let the Lord go without a blessing. He clings to Christ because that's exactly what biblical faith does. That's exactly what he should have done. That's what biblical faith does. Jacob, the man who had manipulated Esau into trading his birthright for appeasing the flesh. Jacob, the man who had swindled his father, deceived his father for the sake of receiving his father's blessing. He's had earthly blessings. He doesn't care about earthly blessings anymore. He doesn't even want them. He isn't going to be able to cheat or scheme or manipulate to get the greatest blessing possible, and he knows it. 
He wants to be blessed not by man. He wants to be blessed by God. And he knows that nothing else comes close in comparison. That everything else, everything else he could possibly have paled in comparison to that. And so he begs and he pleads and he clings to Christ saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Emphasis on you. I will not let you go until you bless me. See, Jacob didn't want any of the stuff the world had to offer anymore. And he didn't seem to realize that the great blessing was in being broken free from his stubborn self-reliance. The blessing was in having his flesh weakened. The blessing was in being brought to the point of full surrender. Having an injured hip was nothing. It was, a, it, was a, it was a bargain. It was a small price to pay for the blessing of a deeper submission and a fuller surrender and a more eager obedience unto the Lord. Think about it. This passage starts with, with Jacob trembling. That's the verb that describes him at the beginning of this passage. He's trembling because he realized that his plans and his schemes and all the things that he was going to do by his own self-reliance might not or probably wouldn't work this time. And so he was afraid because he was losing confidence in himself. From there, he moves on to another verb, a posture of wrestling. As God came to bring him to a point of, of complete exhaustion and injury and humility and surrender. His third position, his third posture, is clinging to Christ, which is what biblical faith does. Jacob hasn't taken this posture because he's a wimp. He hasn't taken this posture because he's a weakling. He's clinging to Christ because God has humbled him and he has remade Jacob in Christ's image as he's now more fully surrendered to the will of God, unable to run if he wants to. He's going to meet Esau. And if Esau is angry, if Esau wants to declare war, Jacob's at his mercy. But really, it's because of God's mercy. He couldn't run if he wants to. He must trust Christ. That is the only option left on the table for him. And this is what we must do. And God will discipline us to bring us to the ends of ourselves if He must. But when He does, we must cling to Christ as our only hope. James Montgomery Boyce says this, he says, it is the determination and strength of faith to hang helpless on Christ and know that He is able to support and comfort the one who thus clings to Him. End quote. Do you want that for yourself? Do you want that in your life? Do you see that this is the greatest blessing that you could possibly receive?
then come to Christ in faith and cling to Him as your only hope while you still can. While you still can. The clock's ticking. And in case you didn't realize that every single moment of our lives, we are one heartbeat, one failed heartbeat away from meeting God face to face. And we don't know when that's going to be. So until that point, the clock is just ticking. So why wait? You know, I, I, one of the reasons I love the fact that Jacob just clings to Christ with all that he has here is that it shows what kind of man Jacob has become. Overnight, literally, overnight, he's changed. See, he didn't grow bitter. He could have grown bitter about this. He could have said, hey God, what are you doing? You know, you just injured my hip. I might have to run away tomorrow. There might be a time in the future if I get past tomorrow. There might be a time in the future when when it would be really useful for me to be able to walk without a limp. He could have grown bitter about it. But he doesn't. Instead, he begs and pleads for a blessing. And he gets it. The, the God-man asks him, what, what's your name? And it's important to keep in mind that whenever God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. Whenever he asks a question, he's not trying to gather information or data because he already knows it all. He's omniscient. He, he knows everything from beginning to end. He knows all things. And so what we need to understand is that when he asks for his name it's not because he doesn't know he asks this question because jacob is fully surrendered and now he's at a point where he can confess not only his name but also his character let's remember that the name jacob means heel grabber or cheater and that's exactly what he was and so this is a chance Now that he's been humbled, now that he has submitted more fully unto God, this is the time for him to confess the sin that has characterized Jacob throughout his entire life. See, if you want a right view of God, you also have to have a right view of yourself. You must know and you must understand something about yourself, that you have a sinful nature that would resist God, that would defy God, that would rebel against God until the better end, if He did not, by His grace, work all things to change us, granting us repentance, that we might turn from our sin. And until you understand that about yourself, until you understand that there is nothing good in you or me. It's really easy to think that, okay, I'm a sinner, but I'm not a bad sinner. It's easy to think you're just really not all that bad. Only after coming to this point was Jacob ready to encounter Esau because he'd been humble. Only at this point is Jacob ready to be honest with himself and with God about the sin that has characterized his life. See, we we must all be brought to the point, the same point that Jacob was brought to, and the same point that Paul was brought to. When Paul said in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. And even after 
being saved. He continues, he says, I I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For for, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can you say that about yourself? Can you identify with that? Does that describe your life in any way? That you want to do something good, you want to be pleasing to God, but at the same time you realize that there's nothing good in you that would give you the ability to do it. Until the Lord brings us to the place where we can see, and, and so where we can identify with exactly what Paul was saying about himself here. Our tendency will be to rely, to depend far, far too greatly on ourselves, on our abilities, and on our flesh. Now, I understand that this is totally contrary to everything that pop psychology would tell you, because it doesn't necessarily make you feel good about yourself, right? It's not exactly a positive alternative, which gives us this false sense of goodness about ourselves and doesn't urge us to confess or to repent or to obey or to grow in holiness, I totally get that it's easier to think, okay, I'm I'm a sinner, but I'm not a really bad sinner. But the truth is, yes, you are. And so am I. So am I. Paul would say that he was the chief of sinners. If he's the chief of sinners, I'm the president. And that's a good thing to be brought to, a good conclusion to draw. Don't be fooled because so many people don't see the depths of their desperate need for Christ because they're hanging on to a false sense of goodness within themselves, even if it's just a little bit. Unless they never cling to Christ with as much desperation at least as they would or or should if they only understood the greatness and the wickedness of the flesh of their sin. God must break us. God must be the one to break us. He must obliterate our confidence in the flesh in order that we, like Jacob, would cling to Christ and refuse to let Him go without His blessing. Because that's what biblical faith does. So in confessing His name, Jacob is also confessing the type of guy He's been his entire life. He's confessing that he's been this cheating, swindling hack and that nothing good dwells within him. But here's the blessing. He receives a new name. Israel. Why? Because he's not Jacob anymore. He's not the swindling cheater, heel grabber anymore. Because he's lost all of his confidence in his own flesh. And what a beautiful thing to to lose confidence in. He's no longer a cheater. He's no longer a schemer who depends so much upon himself. Now the meaning of of Israel is slightly debated. Some commentators will say it means uh, prevails with God, while others say it means God prevails. And I would say, isn't it possible that both are actually accurate? He prevails with God or God prevails. Because Jacob lost this wrestling match with the Lord. And thus it's true to say that God prevails. 
And yet, in, the same, in, a, in a different sense, Jacob also prevailed because he is a changed man who has been delivered from who he used to be. He wasn't exactly this, this man of great faith before, but he is now. By the grace of God, he is now. So his loss was actually great gain. And then Jacob asks the Lord for his name which is kind of interesting. At least God's answer to him is, is very interesting. He doesn't even answer it. Instead, he, he responds with a question. He says, why do you ask? And once again, we have to remember that God doesn't ask questions to gather information, right? He wanted Jacob to think about this. Jacob, why, why are you even asking this question? Think about that, and I'll just leave you with that. That's basically what he, what's happening here. He wanted Jacob to think about it. He wanted Jacob to consider his motivation in asking for his name. Is it possible that the reason he wanted to know the Lord's name is so that he could somehow benefit from his name in a, in a manipulative sense? I think it's at least possible, maybe even likely. That would certainly explain why the Lord gives him no response. Tomorrow's Christmas. Tomorrow's the day when we, we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh and dwelling among us. And you know, there's a fairly funny scene in a Will Ferrell movie that came out several years ago in which he insists on praying to sweet baby Jesus. You guys know the scene I'm talking about, some of you? And I think the reason that it's so funny is because it's really not that far away. That's what makes good humor. It's really not that far away from the truth, the way that most people see Jesus. Even secular people, you know, they don't mind seeing a baby in a manger. They don't, they don't mind thinking of Jesus as a baby because that's not threatening. That's not uncomfortable. We don't, we don't feel the need to fear a baby in a manger, even though we should. So we sing songs like, Oh, come, let us adore him. And, and even secular people uh, love to sing, you know, Oh, come, all ye faithful. Because we adore babies, right? I mean, every baby. You, you could go into a hospital and say, Oh, I, I adore that baby. Oh, that baby too. I, I adore that baby. But the truth is that if we understand who this baby in a manger is, and why he came, we should feel very threatened. We should feel very uncomfortable. Because he came to declare war on Satan's kingdom. And to redeem a people for himself from it. And he was crucified, died, and was buried. He rose again on the third day. And he ascended into heaven where today and forevermore he reigns at the right hand of the Father. That's a baby to be feared. So come and adore the baby in the manger as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the King of all glory who is the sovereign God by whom, for whom, and through whom all things were created and are now sustained. Come to Him with reverence. Come to Him with awe. But also come to Him with fear and trembling because he's a god who is not mild or tame he is 
fierce. He is savage. He cannot be controlled. His will cannot be thwarted. And his kingdom lasts forever. So come and adore him, but be prepared to forsake all confidence in yourself or the flesh. Come to him with an eager willingness to obey and cling to him in your brokenness. Because that's what biblical faith does. He promises that whoever comes to him in faith, he will never cast out. This this scene that we looked at today isn't a picture of Jacob prevailing in prayer. It's a picture of a shepherd who will not let his sheep go. A shepherd for whom none can escape his hands. And so come to him. And he will never cast you out. And he will never condemn you. Instead, he will clothe you in robes of his own righteousness so that one day, you and I can stand before God, not only forgiven, but transformed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. And like Jacob, Lord, we confess to you that there are sins that have characterized each of us for far too long. And we understand, Father, that it is only by grace that we can turn from them in faith and live a life instead that's pleasing to you. Not as your enemies, but as your friends, as your people whom you sent Christ to redeem. So we thank you for him. We thank you for the promise that when we confess our sin, we are washed clean and forgiven. But Father, we pray that our confession would not be in vain and that we would continue to to, to rely on the strength of the flesh But we pray, Lord, that you would work all things to grow us in Christ's likeness. Give us a perspective which is at peace, which is is, is well in our souls to become like him, whatever the cost. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that it would bear good fruit for the glory of Christ in each of our lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.com 
org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.